0: Do you want to hear about great work happening in schools around the world? Just schools are life-giving places that address feedback, engagement, and well-being for each student. This concept is founded on love and justice for each student. Dr. John Eckert digs deep into the current educational landscape with research, experience, and a good dose of humor and humility. Join us in the desire to do justice, love kindness, and walk with confident humility. Get inspired with stories of improvement in the profession that makes all others possible.
1: This week, we're talking to Katie Kilpatrick, an amazing English and history high school teacher outside of Dallas. This conversation goes back to our Humans Before Outcomes conversation that we've had a couple times already on previous episodes. But this time, it's Humans, humans Before Outcomes Using data. Sometimes we see data and humanity as being separate things, but I love this conversation because Katie has found some ways to see each student and not lose the individual for the larger group in the way that we don't want to miss the tree for the forest. And we also don't want to miss the forest for the trees, but we've got to see the individual tree. And so, Katie has some ideas that have changed the way she teaches AP classes. I think they can change the way we think about kindergarten through graduate students as well. So, as you listen to her talk about seeing each student and how she uses data in ways that inform her practice. I hope you find this encouraging and that you see these as some of the micro changes that lead to the kind of habits that will make her a better educator for each student. I'm really excited about what you're going to hear from her because I think she's always been really good at seeing each student instead of losing each student because of all students. So, she hasn't missed the trees because she's only looking at the forest, which is one of the introductory pieces to one of the chapters in Just Teaching. And I especially love this because of some of the practices she's put in place in her classroom. And then in her capstone work that she's done to complete her master's degree here at Baylor University in the master's in school leadership, she found a way to find each student instead of all students through data, Because I think sometimes educators see the human side of teaching as being separated from the evidence and data side of teaching, and she's found a way to bring those together to see each student well. So Katie, thanks for being with us. If you can talk to start with about some of the practices you put in place, just practically to see each student in your classroom, and then we'll jump into the data side of that conversation.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Uh, One practice that was very helpful during the COVID days was to turn the iPad around when I had kids who were streaming class live from home. We had throughout those years, you know, maybe 15 kids in the room, five kids at home, sometimes half and half, and we live streamed class. So I had an iPad on a tripod three feet in front of me all year long. And there were kids who were watching live from home. And so it was, uh, we started calling them the roomies and the zoomies, yep. the kids in the room, the kids on zoom and um,
1: really hard way to teach, by the way,
0: <laughs> it was very hard, but I just realized that I'm greeting the kids individually in the room. And I'm saying, "How's the basketball game and how's your mom? And, but the kids at home are just getting completely ignored. And so, and and honestly, they, probably miss the interaction with their peers more than they miss right. the interaction with me. So there was a the ability to kind of swivel the iPad around so I would just turn it around and they could see out of the front camera their peers and so I would just do a little 360 with that iPad and then the kids at home I would, you know, say hello, you know, Jeremy, we're so glad to see you and everybody in the room would wave at Jeremy and um sometimes they would do a little small talk in the Passing period, they would come up to the iPad and say, "Oh, you know, Kylie, we're so sorry you're sick. You know, how's it going?" Um, Because I think they felt probably more more isolated from each other than they were sad to be missing my class, great as it may have been that day. So (laughs) I'm sure
1: that's not true. I'm sure it was the passion for well the the literature and the text that they were missing.
0: (laughs) They missed their friends. I mean, even during lockdown. So I, I wanted to facilitate that, and even after COVID. Now, um, when I have a student who's out long-term from, uh, you know, maybe an, uh, a surgery, that's pretty common in our student population. We have a lot of, you know, shoulder surgeries and knee surgeries or even like a mono or an appendicitis. We'll just say, hey, Aiden's having shoulder surgery today and he was okay with me sharing that with you guys. And so, we're going to start class with a prayer. And also, can every single person in the room grab your phone and just message Aiden? Love it. Um, and maybe they have his... Number to text him because they're friends. But even if they aren't, we can use Microsoft Teams or school email to just send a message. And so the next time they pick up their phone, they're going to see, you know, 20 messages saying, Hey, we missed you. How are you feeling? Get well soon. Um, And I hope that that really makes them feel like they weren't gone and forgotten.
1: Right. And I think what's great about that is a lot of teachers do that kind of outreach where they reach out and check in on a student, but bringing the whole class into it makes a sense of shared ownership and probably does, to your point, mean more to them than when they just hear from a teacher. And so, I think that's a great way to leverage the kind of leadership you have. So, that's a really helpful practical tip that I think any of us, whether we teach kindergarten or college students, those are all useful things to think about in a way to increase attendance, you know, we've seen chronic absenteeism go from 11% pre-COVID to 22% post-COVID. So, it's doubled. That's a problem because it doesn't matter how great your class is. If students aren't there or they're disengaged from it because they're separated virtually, they're not going to learn. And so, you found a way to incorporate data into seeing each student and not losing them in the all, which averages tend to do. Averages tell you where the average student is, but they don't tell you the kids who are the outliers, the ones who are at the far ends of the normal distribution, how they're flourishing or how they're not flourishing. So could you talk a little bit about how you did that in a way that I think is kind of counterintuitive for a lot of us in education who think that there's humans and there's data, and those are two separate things. So could you talk about how you did that?
0: One of my capstone projects was to look at a wellness survey that we did for all 500 kids in our high school. And we have a high-performing high school. And initially, I thought um, my prediction was that I would see disparities in maybe male responses from female responses. In the end, they were practically identical. Mm. Um, I was thinking I might see unhappy new kids when I disaggregated uh, students for whom it was their first year versus second or longer tenure at our school. But the surprise was where I actually did see the disparity in the, the amount of flourishing in wellness. And that was between kids who were taking mostly higher track classes and mostly lower track classes. And so, although the AP scores, the SAT scores, um, even the wellness survey results, when you look at the whole student population look so high, it looks like, wow, we're just really killing it in all these different ways. When I looked at students who took mostly lower track classes. There was a big overlap with our learning difference population. And that was the group of students that was the least happy. And so that really broke my heart because there was a significant difference in the overall wellness score between kids taking mainly lower track classes, but also some individual responses just broke my heart, like Mm. not of an individual kid, but of a certain question. For example, the question... um, I am trying my best. Uh, What I'm learning is relevant to my life and future plans. And I'm involved in extracurriculars. All three of those wellness questions, there was a huge drop-off for Mm. kids taking lower track classes. So, um, that just really generated some conversation with some other educators on our campus about why are these kids hurting so much and how can we see them? How can we serve them? And how can we get to more flourishing?
1: Well, and I love that, that you said it wasn't what you expected. And that's when data is useful. I get so tired of people saying you can make data, say whatever you want. That's not true. If you're unethical with data, you can do that. But when you're genuinely trying to get to the truth and what more important truth is there as a teacher, then who's flourishing and who's not. And you look at data in an unbiased, unvarnished way based on questions that are hard questions to ask that we don't want to hear negative answers to. We want to think every kid loves being in our class, loves the school environment that they're in, that feels like they're flourishing. But if we don't look at what the reality is, if we don't use data to see each student, it's very difficult to do that. How many students do you teach a day, Katie?
0: I have kids for two hours because I teach both history and English. So I have 45 total, Okay, um, about 22 in the morning, 23 in the
1: afternoon. Okay. So- 45 students is a lot. It's very easy to lose those kids in the wash. And as you become more veteran and you're less focused on yourself, it's easier to see individual kids. But even in a given day to have a one-on-one conversation with each of those 45 kids, that may not happen. And so that's why we use data to confirm what we know is happening or more importantly to redirect us when we think one thing's happening cuz one another thing that drives me a little bit crazy about educators sometimes and this is me included is Well, we don't need to collect data because we already know. Or when data is collected, like, oh, I already knew that. And yeah, maybe. But there are times where when data is used well and it's collected by teachers on things that matter, then then it makes a difference. And so I think, again, what I love about your projects, these were things you cared about. These were things you wanted to know. These were things that mattered about human beings. And so that changes data that's standardized data that's just on performance on the AP test. Because I think you even changed the way you talk about AP classes and what the purpose of those is, where you're not just looking at a test score. You're looking at something more. So could you talk a little bit about how you changed? I remember you saying this in a class maybe a year ago, about the way you changed the way you even talk about AP tests and AP scores, which matter to AP teachers. But how did you change that to make it more focused on the human, still expecting excellence, but making it focused on what really matters?
0: So this was directly as a result of my first summer in this program. We came down to Baylor, did an intensive, about two weeks, took two classes. um, And then I rewrote my first day of school presentation, which I also give a version of to the parents on parent night uh, about 10 days into the school year. And I used to spend a lot of those minutes and a lot of slides talking about the AP test. Here's how many kids took it last year. Here's how they did. Here's a chart correlating their grade book grades with their AP scores. And
1: I'm sure that looked good for you, right? Just it, to be clear.
0: It it. it It did. It made our school look great. And it it set the kids up to say, you know, if I work hard, I can also do that. But I just realized that is not the point. And I don't want them to think it's the point. And um, my school is right now kind of rethinking our relationship with AP because we just really want to be clear that our goal is wisdom Mm. and not... Uh, hyper obsession with this test and that when I have to choose one or the other, I mean, my kids are writing DBQs and rhetorical analyses and all of the above, but if I have to pick, I want I want them to walk away with wisdom instead of a five. And so, uh, yeah, I, I just rewrote that presentation to start off the very first day with what are the virtues that are going to be prized mm. in our class? What are some quotes that kind of articulate a philosophy of education where the highest goal here is to glorify God and to become who he wants me to be and to promulgate his kingdom and to look like the virtues in my classroom are kindness, hustle, and elevate the room, make the experience Mm -hmm. better for everyone rising, you know, be the rising tide that floats all the boats um, so that everybody participates in making the meaning. And starting off with that, instead of a graph of last summer's AP scores, um, I just wanted them to know what, what we were doing was really about.
1: Mm. Well, Adam Grant talks about confident humility. And I I feel like what you're exhibiting here is a confident humility. I've done these things this way for a long time and I'm good at it and I can show this. And so what I wanted to be clear was this isn't you saying AP scores aren't the be all and end all because your students aren't doing well. well. They're doing well based on that measure. You're saying there are more important things that an AP score can't capture. But I do wonder, do you think wisdom and a five on the AP score are mutually exclusive ends? Because what I'm curious about is how your students actually do on the AP test this year. Because I hypothesize that if you've done that well, what you just described, that they might actually do better with that not actually being the goal, but you might actually see better results in the AP. What, what do you think? You're the one in the classroom. What do you think?
0: well we have seen um in the last several years we have been slicing history content because kind of in response to the book essentialism yeah um and he has this german proverb that he references frequently in the book less but better mm. um you know we used to teach just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of terms in ap us history and we it's a survey course. We go from the Aztecs to Obama. I mean, it's a mile <laughs> wide and half an inch deep, you know, and mm-hmm. you're just racing, racing, cover it all. Um, but we, about five years ago, we sliced a third of the terms and we said, what is mm-hmm. essential? Mm-hmm. Our principal is to think about how, you know, an arm is important, but a brain is essential. Um, really look at the essentials of your course and effort to go deeper and, and remove a little density to facilitate a little mm-hmm. breathing room for that. Um, and then a year or two later, we did it again and we sliced another third of the terms out. And I think as I've grown older and more experienced as a teacher, I've been able to have confidence in my gut to say this is not essential. Mm. Um, and there's the, uh, the external measure of I've read the last 20 AP tests and I've never seen a question about this. So we right. can safely cut it. But but also to to pull back and zoom out and say, I'm trying to raise educated Christian citizen thinkers, and that's on the first day of school slide too. Our goal is to create Christian citizen thinkers mm. um, who can Love be it. ambassadors um, for Christ into the United States of America and, and intelligently, you know, represent Him in a winsome and convincing way to our culture. Um, and so, I've actually seen the scores go up as mm-hmm. we've removed some yeah. of that density because we can slow down, we can learn less but better.
1: Right. And I think so much of that is driven by fear that we won't cover everything. And when we do that, then that impedes learning. And I love Greg McCown's book, Essentialism, uh, for that reason, because in life, we've got to remove the small rocks in the jar so the big rocks fit. And so, as educators, that's what great educators do. And I think as you become more veteran, you're better at identifying what matters most. And so, ultimately, we have a problem in the United States in that I love democracy, but in a democracy, instead of saying, hey, this matters more than this and we're going to focus on that, that then becomes an issue because the way our curriculum has been developed in the United States is if there's disagreement, it's just added in. And that's why we have 600-page Fifth grade textbooks, when we used to have textbooks where if you look in Singapore, they have a 150 page textbook because they're like, this is what we're going to focus on in math for fifth grade and we're going to master it. In the United States, it's let's do a little bit of everything and uh, history going back to the Aztecs to Obama. There are quite a few ways you could drill down on that. And if you are thinking you're just going to cover it all, that all you can do is the mile wide, inch deep approach to it which is a critique of our system where we need to become better and i see veteran educators like you saying hey no that doesn't matter and you have the credibility because you have good ap scores that keep getting better and so then that's an external validation that no that stuff maybe that didn't matter and this stuff matters more but what i love about you is you use that data to focus on human beings and say hey it's more than just this test score but the test scores here. And so, we can still take heart that you will get AP credit for this and you'll do it well and that will help you with college. And some parents really care deeply about that. But ultimately, what you care about is the human being. So, as we wrap this up, if you had one piece of advice, uh, particularly for maybe AP teachers or high school teachers or kindergarten through college teachers, what would you say is the thing that you're most hopeful about as you look ahead at a profession that's been kind of under attack for the last few years as being a place that's like, hey, this is a really hard profession to be in. And maybe it's not for sharp kids who have a lot of ability, maybe don't go into teaching. What kind of advice do you have for those in the field or those who are thinking about being in the field?
0: I love that C.S. Lewis quote that every person you've ever met is immortal, Mm, Um, that it is immortals whom we marry snub. He goes on, gives a couple other examples. Yep. Um, they're just immortal souls mm-hmm. and they're in the chairs in the building. So on hard days, you know, when you have conflict with a coworker or there's drama with the curriculum or you look at your paycheck and you think, man, I, what, could, what else could I be doing? Something easier, maybe that paid more. I just, the mantra that I say is put put your head down and do the mission. Mm. And the mission is the kids. Right. Um, and the mission is their souls. And that doesn't mean that two plus two equals Jesus. We're going to learn content. Like, this <laughs> right. is not a glorified right. Bible study right. in my class. But um, man, just put your head down and do the mission. And the mission right. is the kids. And right. they're walking in my room at 1035 and I'm going to love them. And I'm going to serve them up rich content in a christian worldview and the fact that we're teaching a little less but better means there's going to be breathing room at the end of class to get to the essential question that i would always skip for time and to not just think about what happened in american history but is it good is it beautiful um and then the kids are going to walk out from that and the holy spirit's going to do what the holy spirit's going to do and so it helps to put the other you know distractions or dramas on the back burner and just say put your head down and do the mission
1: yes and so i i think what you just said so well is we love kids well by teaching them a subject that they need to know but it's about them as human beings and doing the mission you don't love them well if you're not teaching them english and history in That's your right. class but you can do that in a way that loves them well holds them to high standards and makes them better human beings and so that's what i love about walking alongside leaders like you who may stay in the classroom for the rest of your career but now have a degree in school leadership that allows you to spread your impact in in broader ways so katie really thank you for your work and thanks for being with us today thank you i hope you could hear the passion and energy that katie brings to her teaching the way she loves each student The way she sees growth is something that happens even as a veteran educator that can happen regularly in ways that she finds joy in the way that she has grown as an educator and I think is getting better results for her students. But her focus is always on each individual and that's my hope for you this week that you would see each student and each colleague that you serve and help come alongside them to help them become more of who they were created to be. Have a great week.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Baylor Center for School Leadership. Watch for Dr. John Eckert's first book in the series starting in January 2023.